I have titled this, A Faith That Works. A Faith That Works. The past two weeks, we've been looking at the simplicity and the purity of the gospel of Christ Jesus. That is the nakedness of the cross that we would see Christ made bare. Stripped down to the the essential, which is His completed, already finished work on the cross. That we would add nothing to the gospel that saves. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what should come next in the life of the believer, of a genuine convert? Some would say, well, nothing at all. You're in Christ, eat, drink, be merry. Simply rest secure in the message that you received. But what if there was something, what if there was something that we were supposed to be doing with our time here on earth? Not amassing wealth, retiring, having kids, grandkids. Those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong. I'm getting ahead of myself. But what if we were supposed to be doing something for God? That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to teach on perfected faith, that is, a faith that works. If you would turn to James chapter 2 this morning. James brings a teaching which on the surface seems to not harmonize well with the two weeks we were talking about last week in Colossians chapter 2. With the last two weeks, on the surface, it looks like there's a contradiction, but is that really what is going on? And so I wanted to spend some time transitioning uh, from the, the nakedness and simplicity of the gospel of Christ Jesus and looking at how we can harmonize James's teaching and throughout his book and uh, see what we can get out of this. In that passage in Colossians 2, Paul was teaching that grace alone saves through faith alone. But James points out that works are necessary in the life of the believer. So which is it? Is it faith alone or is it faith plus works? Now it's my goal that after this morning we will see that James and Paul are not at odds, but we would be confident that works which cannot save are still required in the life of the believer. James chapter 2, going to start in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The underlying purpose of this passage seems to be clarifying to the believers on the subject of true faith. Notice James begins this section by using the example of someone who says he has faith. He doesn't say that this person has faith. He says, this person believes he has faith, and this is in verse 14. He says he has faith. And there's going to be sort of an outline. I'm going to add and read between the lines here and and talk about three different types of faith. But this is how James is is starting out. He's, He's talking about someone supposedly, someone who claims to be a Christian. I don't know about you. Maybe... You know somebody that, that claims to know Christ Jesus, that claims to be a Christian, that comes to church and, and thinks they've got everything together, they think they've got everything they need. They, they've got fire insurance, right? I prayed this prayer, and now I'm going to escape hell. But James is saying there's something more than just making a declaration. There has to be something 
that follows. Then he immediately gives an example of what true and false faiths are, beginning with the negative to demonstrate what empty faith is. This is verses 15 through 17. He says, this is not faith. This this doesn't even mean anything. It's just dead faith. Someone can't say they have faith. It's just, and not do any good deeds. That's just empty or dead faith. And then James speaks of faith, which is justified before one another by works. It's, It's the context here is about proving to others that we have genuine faith. Some look at this passage and say, oh, we're justified by works before God. Well, that's not what's true. You've got to look at the whole Bible in and of itself. We are justified by His grace, by faith through grace, grace through faith. And this is how we are cleaned and, and justified is this, it's this washing. It's, it's just as if we've never sinned. So He takes you, when you declare yourself as a follower, a believer of Christ Jesus, you put your faith and trust in Him. Then he, he wipes away your past and doesn't hold any sins against you. That's how you're justified. But in this passage, we're justified before others or outsiders by our works. They know that you are a believer by your love, by your good deeds, by your fruit. These are different things that Paul and Jesus talk to and we're going to get to over the next couple of weeks. He's making a distinction between those that can't claim to be Christians and those that are actually living it out. Now, in verse 18, it's clear. Well, let's read that first. Did I read that one? I did. But someone may say, well say, you have faith and I have works. It says, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's clear that James is writing about showing one another our faith by the good deeds that we do. This is not salvation plus or by faith and works. This is a demonstration of what faith, proper faith, real genuine faith would look like. It's, it's a demonstration of how faith and works should go together in the life of the believer, that is, before others. It's like a testimony or a proof of our confession. To use a more contemporary phrase, putting your money where your mouth is. And no, I'm not speaking about bringing me tithes. (laughs) Then James goes into this example of a type of faith that isn't much different from the faith of demons. This first type of faith I'll call belief of God. Belief of God. Look at verse 19. James writes, you believe that God is one. I'm, again, reading between the lines here, I'm just going to call this belief of God. Do you know there are people that believe in God that have no relationship with Him? There are people that believe the God of the Bible and the God of Muhammad are so similar that it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe in even the right God, but still not have salvation. Because there is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a belief of God that's going to get you to heaven. Now, no doubt there were many people, and still are today, that think as long as they believe in the right God, that everything's groovy. To borrow a phrase from 70s, 
<laughs> Way on back. Ah, trust me, I wasn't even born. <laughs> Others might pray, oh, the sinner's prayer. As long as I say these words as some sort of incantation. Oh, you know, when I was a kid, I said those words, right? My parents just finished a vacation Bible school, and they had um, the most that they've ever had, and I think night three or four is when they do the, the altar call. I think it was, um, they had 35 children that said this prayer and gave their life to the Lord. Now, that's great, and I don't want it to take away from that or detract from it. It's a wonderful thing, and these are memories that hopefully stick with them forever. But hopefully, they come back to the church and they get fed the whole scripture. Because I just wonder how many children make a prayer, and their moms remember it, and they write it down, and they put it on a little bookmark, and they say, oh yeah, my child's saved, and they think that everything is good. We need to be careful from that deception. Because there's a whole lot of people out there that believe this, that. It's a great step. But James says, if there's not a real change, if there's not a real outworking of that faith, then it's just dead faith. It's really no different than the demons. You know, we say all sorts of things like, when did you come to believe? Or, when did you accept Jesus? Most of the time, there's so much focus on that profession, that act those speaking those words that people are never encouraged of what comes after faith. We focus so much on that day, that moment, that we never really disciple people through the rest of their life, the outworking of that faith. Here, James is teaching that we may even say, I believe, with all seriousness, with all piety, but... It is possible that it is more, nothing more than some intellectual acceptance of historical facts. That won't get you saved. Belief of God has no saving quality whatsoever. Yet belief of God is better than no belief at all. For look at the next words of James. He writes in 19, he says, you do well. He's not disparaging them. He's not taking away from that belief. Belief of God is better than no belief. It's a step. He knew its basic value, he praised it, but he does not end there, for it's clear that he was desperate that we should not confuse head knowledge with heart belief. The second kind of belief is what I will call belief in God. But does this belief save? Well, not according to James. Once again, look at the rest of verse 19. He says, the demons also believe in shudder or tremble. They believe in God. They've had so much experience and interaction with God that it would be impossible for them to deny Him. I know it may seem like a waste to parse this out, but I believe that it is not. Have you ever stopped to consider that there is not one spiritual being, one atheist among all the ranks of demons? They know too much to succumb to the delusion. Yet the delusion comes from the pit of hell, doesn't it? Ironic. They're feeding you something that they themselves don't believe. They tremble. Not only because they believe in God's existence, but they also believe in His power. They know what is to come their way. 
that hell was actually created for the devil and all of his angels. Hell wasn't created for humans. We were created in the express, in the image of God. We were created to, to, to represent His likeness. And, and we are on this path. This is what we deserve is ultimate death and separation from Him because we've rejected Him. But that was not our destination. Hell was set aside for the devil and his angels. Now, this belief in God, in my opinion, is, is like a level beyond belief of God. It's you believe that He exists but then you believe that he's real, that he has power, that he can do these great things. But yet, clearly according to Scripture, the demons still believe and tremble. That will not be enough to save you. For example, does belief in a doctor cure you? Does knowledge of how a doctor treats another cure you? His methods, does, does knowledge of the know-how and the, and the things that he goes through does that cure you? Does belief that a doctor can treat you cure you? Of course not. You may have faith in a doctor because of your friend's testimony even. Oh, visit so-and-so. They were so good to me. And you get excited and you have a little bit of hope and you hear about it and you say, oh, well, I just got to go to him too. But unless you go to that doctor and apply that care that that doctor specifies for you, for your illness and ailments, then you're never going to be cured. That's how it is with the gospel of Christ Jesus. The doctor has given us prescription and it's found in his word. So many people go to the doctor, they, they believe a doctor can help, they may even visit the doctor, but they don't actually take the medicine that he prescribed. Knowledge of abilities don't save. The be demons believe and tremble. You must put your faith into action, as we will see. You must follow the doctor's prescription to be cured. You must have more than just knowledge of his shed blood to be saved. You must apply it to your own wounds. I hope you're getting it. And this is what true and real saving belief is. And I'll call this, this is the third type of belief, I will call this belief on him. Not in, but on him. You must put your life in his hands. The Greek is actually best translated in the King James Version. We read this this morning in our Sunday school lesson. It was in John chapter 9, uh, John, excuse me, 12. The King James, which is what our lesson's based on, says, belief on him or believe on him. And in the original Greek, we have all these verses, Acts 16, 31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your house, and you shall be saved. Believe on him. John 3, 16 actually says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that so who, whosoever believes on him, on him might have life. And, and I know our translations, they say in, I understand that. But that's because we don't, we use them interchangeably and we don't have the same working vocabulary. I know, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Don't get too excited. Does that mean that belief in God is not enough? Well, no. We, we would be, it would be foolish of me to ignore linguistics. The fact is we talk differently today than people did 500 years ago. Belief in God, the way that most people use it in church, is, is fine. But I'd, I'm pointing out that belief on God is a more technical, precise phrase. Now, just to make my point, here's what Webster's Revised Unabridged Dictionary, that's a mouthful, says about this. I have a slide here. It says, to believe in. 
to believe in is to believe that the subject of the thought, imagine yourself thinking about God, that he exists, or that if it's an event, that it's actually occurred, like a historical awareness that something has happened, or will occur, as to believe in the resurrection of the dead. To believe in is to believe that something has happened, or something exists, or something will happen. The second definition of to believe in is to believe that the character, abilities, and purposes of a person are worthy of entire confidence, especially that his promises are wholly trustworthy. This is Webster's. Very religious sounding, isn't it? To believe on is to accept implicitly as an object of religious trust or obedience to have faith in, and that's what we're going after. Not just to believe that God can do it. Not to believe that he just exists or that, that he's going to, his word is going to come to pass. The, the demons perhaps even believe that. They know what's coming their way, right? But to trust and put your faith on, to rely on him as your source of hope and salvation, that's to believe on, technically. Belief in deals with whether or not God exists. Believe on deals with placing your trust. To steal Webster's definition, belief on God is simply having faith in Him. Having faith in God is putting your belief on Him. The first two kinds of belief are static, while saving faith or true or genuine faith is the quality that takes us up another level. There's a uh, story of a famous tightrope walker. His name was Charles Blondin. Anyone ever heard of him? He was from the late 1800s, and he was a tightrope walker. I believe he was the first one to go across Niagara on a tightrope. Does that sound right? Um, anyway, there's, a, there's an account of him who was up high, and, and there was this, this tightrope that he had walked across, and he came back to the other side, and he asked a boy who was looking at him, no, no, out with, no doubt with bewilderment and amazement, and he says, do you believe that I can walk again across this tightrope? And he says, I do. He says, do you believe that I could carry you across this tightrope? And the boy replied, I do. He said, then come on up and jump on my back. And the boy disappeared into the crowd. There's another story that I'd like to share, but this has a, a slight twist. I, I don't know if it's true or not. Probably just some preaching story. But it, it'll make a point. While down in the cellar of a shop, a grocer noticed his son was standing up right on the edge of the trap door. He called up, here I am, son, jump down. But the boy hesitated, I can't, I can't see you. The dad replied and called up and said, no, but I can see you, trust me, jump down and I will catch you. Upon which the step was moved, the boy jumped down and was caught in the arms of his father. This is the difference between belief in and belief on. Now let us see what James has to say about this faith that saves, the kind of faith that works, a believing on him, on God. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? No, James is not adding to the requirements of salvation. No, this is not a contradiction to the Apostle Paul's teaching. He is simply pointing out some issues in the lives of the believers that were talking like they were genuinely saved, but in reality, they never allowed Christ to take control of their lives. No, works don't save. 
but they do testify of personal salvation. And this is the teaching of James, that there's a kind of faith which leads to godly works. There's a kind of faith which is more than just knowledge of God. There's a kind of faith which is more than just belief He can save and He has power to save. There's a kind of faith that it's so life-changing, it's actually going to cause you to live differently, to do different things in your life. This is the teaching. There's one is true, the other kind of faith is false and dead. Verse 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his, his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Again, we're talking about justification, the way that people look at us and the the way they know that our faith is true and genuine. Here are two examples given to us by which faith is worked out. First, Abraham. Secondly, Rahab. Rahab? Wait a minute. Really? Does it really say Rahab? Did I read that right? How on earth does Rahab even make the same list as Abraham? Right? I mean, in our text, verse 23 calls Abraham a friend of God. Verse 25, she's referred to, here's her moniker, the harlot. Every place in Scripture Rahab is ever mentioned save one. She has always coupled together, Rahab the harlot. How would you like that to be your identity and follow you around? And yet here she is as a premier example of someone who has been justified by works. A true saving faith was evident in her life. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Rahab was a Gentile woman. Woman, if you know the culture of the time. What a contrasting characters they are. Even still, there is something for us here, something for us to understand and something for Rahab, who is the grace of God. Rahab was just as saved by grace through faith as Abraham was. It doesn't matter what is in your past. There's a lesson there for us. But something unique about Rahab was that she was also changed. There was something different in her life. No doubt in my mind Rahab gave up harlotry after she was rescued at Jericho. We know from Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 that she married Salmon and became the mother of Boaz who was the hero of the book of Ruth. This this kinsman redeemer who who comes in and, and, and takes her up, and, and guess what? It was such a powerful thing that God orchestrated and predestined the whole thing that Jesus would come, not only the, the King David, but Jesus would also come through this lineage of Rahab the harlot. That's redemption. That's grace. And it can only happen because of true, genuine salvation. Not only that she was included, but that she was gone out of her way to be included in the genealogy because women were not normally included in these types of things. 
Not only was Rahab changed, she backed up her beliefs by her works. Verse 25 says that Rahab was justified by works. What were the works which saved her? Well, turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. She hid the spies and she sent them out by escaping. This was an act of faith on her part. Joshua chapter 2. It should be the uh, sixth book in your Bible, unless you got a funky one. Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 8. Spies were sent out into the land. Rahab got word. She lets them in the house. The king's men are sent out. They're dispatched to go find these men. She hears them coming. She hides them up on the roof, covers them in flax. Verse 8, she says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them in the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, this is capital L-O-R-D, this is Yahweh, she knows the name of God. Okay, this is, this is where it's important. We lose this in English. But understand that as this is written down, the way that we have it, if you take it verbatim, she says, I know that Yahweh, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, He is Elohim, or God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's quite an understanding for a Gentile excluded woman. Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How did she come to know that? What insight she had. And the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. In other words, she hid the spies because she believed, because she had belief in God. She had belief in God. She understood His power. She understood the land was going to be theirs in the future. But then she was moved into action. Her faith was not just dead faith, it became faith accompanied and backed by works. She could have just left it there and said, yep, I know you guys are going to get the land. But she said, because I know you're going to get the land, I'm going to hide you. She was moved to action. She put her belief in God and it was changed to belief on God. And this was the verbal declaration I know that the Lord has given you the land, that He is the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. But that declaration alone would not have saved her. She had to move from belief in to belief on. She had to, believe, she had to back up her belief with action, and she did, and she hid the spies. And that certainly would have been risky business. Can you imagine the king, if they had found out that a woman had hid some spies in her house, 
Yet Rahab did it because she believed that her city was doomed and her, her only hope of salvation laid in the people who were about to conquer her city. She risked everything she knew because of her belief in God. Her faith was put to work. Her salvation came because she took action. And that's the word for you this morning. Rahab's salvation came because she took action. Now, after she took action, she makes a request in verse 12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. There's so many good nuggets in here about household salvation and caring for your loved ones and, and belief and all sorts of things, the scarlet, the scarlet cord and all these things we could dwell on, but I don't want to get bogged down by this beautiful account. But notice that this request was prompted by her faith. This city is yours. I know that God has already set it aside for you. I'm going to die. Unless you will swear to me. You will make a promise. I want a token. I want something to know that you are going to save me and honor the word that is, that is being made today. What's this pledge? Well, it's a scarlet cord. And the scarlet cord was not only the device that was going to save the spies, but it was also this symbol of her faith, genuine faith. Oh, that we would wash ourselves with the scarlet blood of Christ Jesus. It's that testimony. It's the blood that we wear, that it's the blood that we declare publicly and put out on display for the rest of the, the city that God is in whom I trust. This is an example of a faith that works. Her faith prompted her to works. Her faith prompted her to seek safety before destruction came. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Her faith made her willing to forsake her own people and city. Her faith prompted her to seek safety before destruction would come. From that day forth, she lived as a, a new life with a new people. Sounds a whole lot like what happens when we become Christians. The last verse in James chapter 2 says this, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A profession of faith that produces no fruitful works is like a corpse. In the same way that we know a body is alive because of its actions, the same way we know a child, a baby is alive because you can see its chest moving up and down in the crib and breathing. There has to be action in the life of the believer. There has to be something that is proclaiming and saying, this person is alive. Or else it's just a dead corpse, a dead body. James is teaching us that if you say you're a Christian then there better be some appropriate works manifested or else your faith is false faith. This sentiment is echoed by John who writes, If you say you have come to know him, yet you do not keep his commandments, then the truth is not in you and you are a liar. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian. You must manifest the fruit of Christianity. Can someone really have faith 
in God's saving power produce no fruit? Well, James says, no. It's not real understanding of God. It's not a real belief on God if there's no fruit that follows. It's biblically inconsistent to say that someone has been saved and has not been changed. Many people go through the outward motions of giving their lives to Christ, but no lifestyle change follows. We, we get out of the aisles, we come to the front, we get on our knees, we pray, we lift our hands, we sing songs, we go to church, we tithe, we, we talk certain ways, we, we change our vocabulary, but if there's not a real works and a fruit that comes out of that life as a result of the belief on God, then really it's for nothing. It's not real salvation, it's just a dead a dead faith, a dead body, and it's, it's not enough to say you believe in Jesus, you must actually believe on Him. You must put that faith to work. And if you actually do, then you will demonstrate that faith by, by a changed and godly life. If you aren't doing works, I want to ask you this morning to evaluate your own life to see whether or not you are even saved. Sure, faith, faith comes by hearing, but hearing isn't what saves you. In fact, you are even taught by Jesus that some hear and they have a superficial response. Hearing's a great start. It's what gets into your spirit and that, that hearing can turn into faith if you believe in it. But hearing alone is not going to get you saved. Matthew 13, do you remember the seed? The, Jesus, why don't you turn there? We've got time. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is teaching a parable of the seeds, right? And there's four different seeds, and where do they fall? Well, I guess we should just read them. It's 13, right? Yes, okay. Verse 1, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, and he got into the boat and sat down, and a whole crowd was standing on the beach. Verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he, and he sowed. Some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. The first seed fell beside, and the birds were eating up the seeds. Any of you planted a garden and had that happen? This year, it was the chipmunks and the squirrels in our house. Oh, my goodness. Woo! Lord, thank you for the squirrels that I hate. Give me grace and patience for them. <laughs> now, now, Louie. <laughs> Verse 5, others fell in rocky places. Second place, they fell in the rocks where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil. They had shallow roots. So once the plant got to any substantial size, they died. Verse 6, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root. Oh, I jumped ahead, didn't I? They withered away. The third one, others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30. Now you skip all the way on down, what is it, verse... 18, Jesus explains what the parable means. The first one are those that the devil snatches away. The birds come and eat up the seeds. It doesn't even take root. The devil comes and he twists and deceives and lies and keeps them from receiving it. They heard, but it doesn't take root. Then the second one, there's this rocks and and the sun comes out, and this, this, these shallow roots, they have no depth. And, and Jesus says, they heard the word, they received it with joy, but what happened? When affliction and trial and tribulation came their way, 
Because their roots were not down into the good dirt, where they were getting nutrients and and living water from the soil, they scorched under the hot sun. They heard the word. They received it with joy. A lot of people in church hear the word and initially hear it, and they are joyful and excited. They shrivel up and die. Now look at the third one. Here's the one in particular that I wanted us to see. The third one, they fell where? Among the thorns. And they got choked out. But look, look what Jesus says here. This is the man who hears the word. This is verse 22. Am I right? Yes, 22. This is the man who hears the word. You can hear the word and not be saved. Who heard the word and the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Worry, anxiety, fear, deception, lies, money, deception, fame, more, more, more. There's people that hear the word of Christ, but then get choked out by the things that are not of Christ. Hearing the word will not save you. It's belief on God. You've got to move into that other category and put yourself to works in what's going to come out of your life. Fruit, hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold in the good soil. There's a second parable, I believe it's in the same chapter. You remember about the tares and the wheat? There are those that, in other words, there's some that fake it for a while. Right? There's wheat, that's representative of the believer. Good fruit, good heads. Lots of productivity growing out of them. But guess what? Somebody sowed some tares in the field. And they were intermingled. And, they, and Jesus was asked a question in this, in this parable. He was, he, was, he was answering the question, what should we do? Should we, should we glean them all? Should we take them all out? Should we rip the tares out? And the answer was no. Don't do it because you'll ruin the wheat. We let them grow up together, and then the angels of the harvest will separate them and put all the tares in a different pile and burn them up so that the good fruits can be taken into the silo. Are you with me? In other words, you don't have what you need to discern the true from the false. You don't have the tools and the resources. If you do it right now, if you try to collect the real from the fake, you're going to end up destroying the real. So tarry a little while, tarry a little while until the harvest time, and then I will separate them for you. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. They weren't really of us. There's a bunch of people in church, there's a bunch of people that claim to know Christ Jesus that are not really of us. This is an uncomfortable truth, but it's something that we are not taught enough. I believe God wants us to know that we know that we are saved, and He wants us also to back up that statement that I am saved, I'm in Christ Jesus with good works. 
We're not saved by those works, but he says, you want to put your money where your mouth is. You want to show me, show the world, declare yourself a believer by the light that's coming out of you, by the, the fruit that you're producing. There's so much of the world that is deceived. They think, oh, as long as I, I know God or as long as I go to church, as long as I say the right things, as long as I stop cussing and, and stop doing these things, maybe I give a little bit of money to the poor, I'm saved and that's all that matters. That's not what God's word says. James says, you've got to have saving faith. You've got to have works faith. That's the genuine faith. Works don't save, but they do testify of our faith. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, we read of a fig tree that had no fruit on it. It had nothing but leaves, you remember? These leaves speak of profession. The fig tree was claiming to be something that it was not. Oh, I got leaves, look at me, I'm a fig. But what happened? Jesus didn't find any fruit on that tree, did he? There was no fruit to satisfy the hunger of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, if, if, if there's only a profession of faith, I'm a fig, but no fruit, then you're worth nothing, and you might as well be shriveled up and dead. Jesus says, if you're going to act like a fig tree, you better have fruit. Amen? The worship team wants to come up. We're going to close out with this. I want to ask you this morning... Are you a barren fig tree that only has leaves? Or are you producing fruit that the rest of the world may eat? Do you look like a fig tree or do you taste like a fig tree?